Hello and welcome to PodRocket, a web development podcast brought to you by LogRocket. LogRocket helps software teams improve user experience with session replay, error tracking, and product analytics. You can try it for free at LogRocket.com. I'm Noel, and with me today is Colin Eerig. Colin's a software engineer working on Node.js, including the core technical and steering committee, and a LibUV collaborator. Uh, he just gave his talk, The State of Node.js Core, at this year's Node conference. Welcome to the show, Colin. Thanks for having me. Before we delve into the talk and, and unpack it a little bit, can you tell us a little bit about your experience in web-related technologies and Node and how you found yourself in the position you're in now? Yeah, so probably, gosh, like 10 years ago at this point, I had heard about Node.js for a little while, but hadn't really done too much with it. And so I got my first job working as a Node developer full-time, and I actually wanted to start writing a book. So I decided I wanted to write a book about Node.js. So I did a really deep dive into the code base so that I could write about it and put it to use at my day job. And in the course of writing the book, I saw a thing or two in the code base that looked like maybe they could be improved. So after I finished the book, I went back and started sending pull requests to fix up those things that I noticed. And then one thing just led to another and kept working on, I guess, more and bigger issues. And then eventually I was asked to become a collaborator on the project. And this was back when Joint, the company that originally was like the corporate steward of Node, was still running the project. And then shortly after that, there was, I don't know if you remember, there was a big fork called IOJS, where the community took the project in its own direction because it was unhappy with the corporate stewardship. And then they formed their own technical steering committee, and I was asked to join that. Then there was kind of the reconvergence where Node and IOJS came back together and what was the Node.js Foundation. It's now the OpenJS Foundation. And yeah, I've, I've just really been working on the project since then. Nice. Yeah. As Node went through those pretty large shifts in the structure, the ecosystem, how did that impact you day to day and how you, your, I guess, your relationship with the project? So in, in my day to day, I would say by the time the fork happened, I was working at Walmart Labs who at the time was really big into Node. The Happy JS web framework came out of there. And so I, that's where I really started getting into open source. IOJS was interesting because the community was moving in that direction. And you know I was contributing there, but still getting to the original Node project because that's what we were using at work. And IOJS, as cool as it was, it had some problems where it was overcorrecting for some of the issues with the original Node project. So the community had been upset that um, Joint wasn't merging patches as quickly as they would like or taking V8 upgrades as quickly as they would like. And then IOJS went in the complete opposite direction. And it was just like all of these commits landing all the time. And there was no real concept of what was stable and what wasn't. So I was having fun working on both projects. But as far as my day-to-day, -day, we couldn't really rely on IOJS at work, so it was just like a side hobby project. That makes sense. Yeah, I think that is probably as good a segue as any to like get into the current state then of Node and what your talk focuses on. We're in kind of mid-early 2023 right now. What is the release schedule looking like for Node? I know 20 just came out like a couple days ago. What's exciting there and what should devs be looking at? Let's unpack the release schedule first. Like you said, Node 20 just came out on April 18th, I believe it was. So that's going to be our current release line. Now we have an official long-term support schedule. This is one of the things that 
came out of the merger back between Node and IOJS is we needed something that could move quickly for developers to be happy with, but something that could be stable enough for large enterprises to be able to use. And so what we landed on is twice a year in April and October, we have a new major release. So this major release was Node 20. In October, we'll have Node 21. So the even numbered releases that come out in April become what we call our current release, which means we land all of our commits in the main branch of the GitHub repository. And then the things that are not breaking changes get pulled into into the current branch. And so everything that lands in main now until, I guess, October will get ported into node 20, as long as it doesn't break anything, at least not intentionally. And so then after six months, once the next release is ready to come out, the even numbered releases go into what is called active LTS, where they start getting fewer and fewer backports of commits. So you might have to wait a little bit longer for the newest features to get there because we want to make sure that things get released on the current line before they get backported so that enterprises can really have as much stability as possible. And then similarly, we have the odd numbered releases that come out in the fall. Those ones do not become LTS releases. They actually are the current release for about six months and then go into a very short like maintenance period before their end of life. So right now that's node 19. Node 19 is now in maintenance, I believe, and will go end of life within the next like month or two. So that's the way things generally work. So as far as active lines go right now, we have 14, 16, 18, 19, and 20. Node 14 is going to be end of life at the end of April. Node 16 was supposed to be end of life next year, but because the version of OpenSSL that ships with it is also going end of life earlier than usual, we decided to truncate that as well to avoid having people running an insecure version of Node in production. Node 18 is where like all of the like stability, but also the good improvements are currently landing. Node 19 is going to go away soon, as I said, and then Node 20 is the more cutting edge release right now. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. I feel like we're in kind of a unique position here where I think that there's going to be a lot of users or organizations that are migrating now because we have 14 and 16 end of life thing in such a close proximity to each other in a somewhat unique way. So would you advise like most of those individuals or groups like look at 18 or look at 20 as their target? So the general recommendation is you should be looking at 18. With 14 being weeks away from being end of life, definitely need to get off of that. No point really migrating to 16 at this point. It's, like I said, it's going to be going away in September. There's not a huge gap when you try to upgrade between these versions. So, you know, there will be breaking changes, but not all breaking changes affect everyone. And most people can really just upgrade without even noticing these breaking changes. So Node 18 is still going to be supported it's going to be active LTS through, I believe, October of next year. And then it's going to go into a maintenance period all the way up until 2025. So you can definitely settle on Node 18. It's still receiving new features and things once they're deemed stable enough. So that 100% is the recommendation. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I guess what leads to your like hesitancy to recommend 20? The idea is we want to get new things that land in the main branch in people's hands, but we still want to have the LTS to be stable. And so sometimes things do land in the current branch that are bugs or regressions. This is happening a lot 
less frequently than it used to. But even with the Node 20 release, we had a regression around ESM loaders and an out-of-memory error. I think it gets into some loop and just eats up all your memory. So these are the types of things where we don't expect these things to happen. (laughs) They do happen. They can really impact you if you're not careful. So unless you absolutely need the latest and greatest features, which most people don't, they just want them. Um, And you should definitely stick to the LTS releases. I guess while we're here, I've always had a personal curiosity here is in your mind, who are the people that are reaching for the odd number releases? Like in that time when 19 was the active version that went pre-20, did you think a lot of people would reaching for 19 were like on projects they intended to carry to production? Or was it mainly people that just wanted to test out new features? Who are you thinking about when discussing and making decisions around those odd number versions? So I I really think that as developers, we always want to have the latest and greatest and new shiny features. Even I'm currently contracting at a company called Platformatic, and there's been discussion about, should we move off of 18 to 20? And I don't think that's going to happen. But A, it's the smaller companies who don't have the huge business interest behind it to try to keep things as stable as possible or are persuaded by individual developers. I think those are the people who really target it. And then there are people who a specific feature comes out and you actually need that feature. That's a very small subset, but those are the also the people who I think would be driven to adopt non-LTS releases. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I honestly follow Node's versioning more more so than any other language at this point. So like we talked a little bit about what should drive devs to pick a different version. And you said that there's some specific features that may point them anyway. Is there anything that, you know, devs that are looking for any specific technical capabilities or anything that you might recommend they check out 20 over 18 as a target right now? So we got a stable test runner in 20, but that is not usually something you need to upgrade your production deployment for. There's a new version of V8, but it doesn't have anything that's really like earth shattering. There's a new permission system that's unstable. So definitely don't recommend running that in production yet. Just looking through the list of things in V20, nothing really jumps out, at least to me, as we have to have this and we need to upgrade. But some people might feel differently, I guess. Hey, uh, interjecting quick here to remind you guys that LogRocket offers session replay, issue tracking, and product analytics to help you quickly surface and solve impactful issues affecting your user experience. With LogRocket, you can find and solve issues faster, improve conversion and adoption, and spend more time building a better product. You mentioned the V8 project there, and you touched upon it in your talk as well. Can you give us some context around what V8 is and why developers should care? Yeah, so V8 is... I would say probably the single most important dependency that Node.js has. It is the JavaScript engine that runs inside of Node. It's also inside of Chrome, developed by Google. And anything that's in the JavaScript language spec really comes from V8. So even in in the Node project, we'll get a lot of people showing up asking for, add this language feature. And we tell them like, no, that's not the way it works. You would have to get it with a language. From there, it would end up in V8 and then eventually it would end up in Node. But yeah, so it's a massive project written in C++. Yeah. So what are the upgrades to V8 that 20 exposes or empowers or allows devs to utilize? The V20 release shipped with V8 11.3. One of the big things that is there is for WebAssembly developers, tail call optimizations. So this can actually turn certain recursive functions into essentially a loop. So that 
save you a lot as far as like memory and whatnot. There have also been some some new APIs. So like string.prototype.iswellformed and too well formed. Array buffers can be resized and growable shared array buffers. Again, other than the tail call optimization for WebAssembly, nothing in that list really jumps off the page to me. It's more of incremental progress that's nice to have. Functional programmers everywhere, though, are rejoicing at the at tail call optimization, so it's all good. I have a note here about like web platform compatibility. Is that just the WebAssembly stuff, or is there additional stuff in there that might be noteworthy? Yeah, so web platform compatibility in general is Node was written back in 2009 originally, and a lot of the APIs on the web just didn't exist. So Node still supports callbacks, even though we have promises and async await, all these new web streams and things like that that have been added to the web platform so that you can run the same code in Node or a browser or another server-side JavaScript runtime if you wanted to. And so the web platform compatibility really gives a single target for developers to write their code so that it'll run in as many places as possible. And so like back in the day, Node predated a lot of these APIs. And then once these APIs started to be created, Node was also slower to adopt them. For example, a big one is Fetch. Fetch is used to make HTTP requests. Node already had an HTTP library. So a lot of the pushback there was, why do we need Fetch? You can just use the HTTP module. And people just kept pushing for it and making the case that like, you know, I want to be able to run the same code in the browser as in Node. And so slowly but surely, I think the project has come around to web platform compatibility is important. And so it is an explicit goal of ours now. Yeah, like it is it is always nice as the end user, just like, I don't have to think of it. Like I encountered one of those just this weekend working on a Svelte project. And I was like, it'd be cool if I could just write this. I was like, oh yeah, fetch. I can just use it. It'll work everywhere now. This will be great. No big deal. Can run it on the SSR or in the browser and either will be fine and, and look at us go. Yeah, I feel like fetch is the obvious example everybody reaches for. Is there any other ones that are in this compatibility mind space that are like top of mind that a lot of devs have been pining for? Yeah, so you mentioned fetch, and fetch comes with some globals like a request object and response object that, that are standardized. As instead of if you're using like an express framework and you get their rec and res objects that are more custom, but there are all kinds of other ones. So web streams are a big one. Node has their own streams implementation, but it's very specific to Node, and there's actually like multiple iterations of it in there. They're not the most fun thing to use. So web streams came along and standardized that for everyone. We do have an implementation of that in Node. We also have adapters so that you can go to and from like between Node streams and web streams. A really like subtle one that I think is very useful is structured clone. So being able to like clone objects in a way that doesn't require you to install Lodash and things like that is nice to have. Web crypto for doing cryptography stuff in the browser, and you can also do it in Node.js instead of Node's custom crypto module. Event target, which is basically the web's answer to Node's event emitter. But yeah, there's a lot of them in Node. Just they don't always necessarily stand out. Yeah, it's like one of those things that's creeping in. People probably don't realize that they're benefiting from it when it's there and available and they can use the same libraries and functions. You mentioned the test runner is all just kind of kind of pulling us out of the V8 world here, but what is the what is the new test runner? How does it work? So I get a little excited talking about the test runner because I wrote it initially. So obviously 
people are writing all these projects for their these JavaScript projects, and then you need to install a linter, a test runner, and things like that. And I have a phobia about installing things from NPM just because there's always so many security issues around them, whether it's malware, people intentionally sabotaging their own modules, and, and things like that. So I really try to keep my dependencies as lean as possible. And one thing that I always found that I was installing was a test runner. And I was very happy with Lab, which is the test runner out of the Happy JS ecosystem, because I know about the code standards that go into Happy. They're very also reluctant to rely on outside modules and things like that. And so one day I was doing something and an ESLint upgrade actually broke Lab for me. And so that was just the last straw to where I was like, you know what, I think we need to have a test runner in Node. Somebody had already opened an issue about it, so I just decided to start working on it. And originally, it was supposed to be as minimal as possible to be able to run tests, but other people have come along and started contributing, and it's grown some other features. So instead of just being able to have one type of syntax for tests, now you can do test like you would with tap or tape, or you can do describe and it like you would with Mocha and Jest. There's experimental code coverage there. Mocking is built in, support for running from the command line. You can either run no-test and it'll look for certain files and execute those for you. It runs every file inside of its own child process, so it keeps things isolated. Supports different types of reporters, so nice, colorful, user-friendly output or tap, which is more like machine-readable things. It's really coming along nicely. It's a little over a year. We just marked it stable in Node 20. So I definitely encourage people to go out there and try it out. There's been some articles written about it online as well as the documentation. And if anyone has any questions about it, feel free to ping me. I'll check it out for sure. It sounds it sounds like one of those that hopefully just can become the de facto and we're all using it in five years and like that's the way it is. I don't think we'll ever get there just because A, it's not really designed for anything related to browsers and B, just people are so opinionated on what they expect out of a test runner. But if you don't want to install anything from NPM and you're building something for Node, not necessarily the front end, then I do think it's more than capable at this point. Yeah, I think like, especially like if you're if you're in the module space or something, like if you're writing node modules, or especially for the back end, like it, and you want to keep it lean and clean, I think that will be super, super handy for devs. How about util.parseargs? I have a note on it as well. What does it do? Yeah, so that was another one of those features that um, a lot of people needed. And there are a bunch of different modules out there to do it. So when you want to write a CLI, it handles parsing the arguments for you. So you can define a schema, say I want to have a specific argument that I want to be treated as a string versus one that I want to have treated as a Boolean. I want to have this flag dash dash foo, but I also want to have a shorthand of dash F. So it, it can do all these things, minimist and commander and yargs and things like that. And these things get millions and millions of downloads. A few people took some initiative and built an implementation into core. I landed on the util module because it's one function. So we didn't really think it deserved its own top level module. No one was really sure where to put it. So util is just where it landed. But yeah, it's been around, I think, since 18 as well. And it also just got marked as stable in node 20. I think I feel like that's one of those that a lot of devs and they're just like, hacking on something or want to try something, they end up either having to pull in a library for it just so they can run their little scripts one off and, I don't know, interface with some API in a repetitive way or whatever they're doing. And I think this will be one that'll make it 
easier for people to do that without having to pull on a whole external dependency to just use this one little piece of it. And they might not need all this extra code. That one's super cool to see. I think you mentioned the permission model as well, like in your list of things that were in 20 very briefly. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So it's called the permission model. I would say probably inspired by the permission model that Dino shipped with, which is a competing backend framework. And what it does is it lets you lock down your process from doing certain things. So by default, a node application, it can read anywhere on the file system, write anywhere on the file system, spawn whatever child process, spawn rm-rf on your file system, basically do all of these things. So the idea behind the permission model is, okay, I want to run my node application, but I don't want it spawning any child processes. If I enable the permission model, then by default, it can't spawn any child processes unless I also pass in dash dash allow child process. Similarly, you can lock down reads to the file system. You can lock down writes to the file system. You can get a little more fine grain. So you can say, you know, I'm going to allow reading from this directory and writing to this other directory, but nothing else. So that's the idea behind it and why it's useful. In practice, from what I found, because I also used to work at Dino, is that it's more for local development, I think. So by the time you're shipping something to production, you should have these things ironed out, not to mention you should be running inside of a container or firecracker or Lambda or something like that's going to handle all this sandboxing for you. This is not meant to be, I can now run on bare metal and I don't have to worry about anything because my permission model is going to stop at everything. It's more for like, I'm running locally and I want to make sure that some NPM module I installed is not trying to read from my file system or whatnot. The other thing about it is it's limited in the fact that it's not per module. If I install, I don't know, I'll just say Express and I don't care what Express does, but then I also install some module that might be a little bit sketchy. I have no way of locking down one without the other. The other thing is, as you build bigger and more complicated applications, they generally need more and more permissions. So I don't want to allow any child processes, for example, but as soon as I add one feature where maybe three levels down in my node modules, it depends on shelling out for some system level functionality, then all of a sudden I have to open up child processes to the entire process. So there are definitely all types of like edge cases and limitations that come with it. It's nice to have. It's a security in layers thing. And then the other aspect to this one is it's still experimental. So there are some caveats that I believe are called out in the documentation as far as like things that are not supported yet. It's a security related feature. So for example, we shipped a test runner and the very first version of the test runner was very rough around the edges, especially compared to where it is now. We don't really get the same kind of luxury with a permission model because People are relying on security. If it doesn't actually provide security, then you know we're going to have CVEs open. People are going to end up trusting it and getting hacked. So like, definitely approach it with a lot of caution at this point. Yeah, and I feel like that's the, just designing the interface for those kinds of features also has to be more, more involved as well, just because if the norm becomes you have to pass in, say, a flag that's like opening up a bunch of stuff for like any real production project to be working, that just becomes the norm. It's kind of like, well, is the permission system even really doing anything for us at this point? Because now everyone's just passing in the flags all the time to open it up, which maybe is what you were alluding to when you said in production, it doesn't, it's not really that meaningful anyway, because like we're hoping that these are all running in like isolated environments and there shouldn't really be anything on the file system as an example, other than what the process is doing regardless. So I get it. But I, I almost sense like some 
not hostility, but it sounds like you have a lot of uh, kind of reservations about the permission system. Do you think the model was like pushed out too quickly or was there stuff you would have done differently or would do differently now? I don't really think it was pushed out too quickly. So it, it landed in the main branch a while back and then we actually kept it out of a few releases because for example, I found an issue where it would lock down spawn, but it wouldn't lock down spawn sync. So that if that would have been released, that would have been a CVE waiting to happen. Another person, another node TSC member was testing it out and found some issues related to, I think it was like file system permissions and specifically symlinks. Symlinks are always tricky because you're trying to lock down this folder and all of a sudden it's a pointer to somewhere completely different. It's not that I have hostility or any bad feelings towards it. It's just, like I said, I used to work at Dino and I really just found that it got in my way more than anything. But I'm sure there are people who will definitely benefit from it. I just, like I said, be careful with it, while, especially while it's still experimental. Yeah, it sounds like your main advice is not to overly trust the permission system now. Use it when you can, but don't rely on it. To, yeah, Definitely kick the tires on it, especially if you're a security researcher. Try to poke holes in it. Maybe you can make a little bit of money, but I would love the feedback on it for sure. That's another good segue for us there. What kind of help do you guys need? Like if people want to get involved, where are you guys looking for contributors or just outside assistance? So Node is a very open project. It's not controlled by any company. So you're not going to have to jump through hurdles to like get somebody from the company to look at your pull request and things like that. You actually can have a path to becoming a contributor and a collaborator or TSC member or whatever. As far as getting involved, there are I think hundreds of open issues and some of them are tagged with like good first issues. So just show up, find something that looks interesting to you. The other contributors will be happy to point you in the right direction if you start posting questions. Don't show up and lick the cookie. So don't show up and say, I would like to work on these five issues. That generally doesn't work out well because then people think someone's working on it. They never end up working on it. And yeah, it's a whole thing. But yeah, the community is very welcoming to new contributors. So just show up in any area that you're interested in. We're more than happy to have help with. Yeah, so it's always good to hear about projects that are like going through the work of grooming the backlog and flagging things that might be good places for devs to jump in. It's always super awesome to see. Is there anything in particular you're excited about in the future, near term or longer term, Node related or even in the JavaScript ecosystem at large? One is uh, something I'm working on. I'm in the process of trying to wrap up code coverage for the test runner. Right now, the way it works is if you have multiple child processes, they all create these different coverage reports. Being able to merge those all back together in a way that makes sense to present to the end user will be really nice to have, in my opinion. At the language level, there are some interesting things coming like shadow realms, async context, and things like that that look exciting and are also like standardized versions of APIs that already exist inside of Node, which is always nice to have. Nice. Very cool. Is there anything else you want to leave listeners with, Colin? Anything else you'd like to call out? I think just, yeah, get out there. Please give Node 20 a a shot. Report any bugs that you find. But remember, if you're running in production, Node 18. Cool. Thank you so much for uh, coming on and chatting with me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me.